Could recycled water be the key to achieving equitable society? From the tiniest place to the mega metro case, it could provide just what we need. This is Making Waves, the podcast bringing you water stories from around Australia. We are amplifying the lesser heard voices of Aboriginal people and communities. I am your host, Marnie Island. Together, we will explore the fundamental role water plays in the places we live, grow, work and love. This episode of Making Waves, let's blow it out of the water as we canvas topics and opportunities focused on recycled water. We'll be hearing about an amazing gubbage enterprise operating out of Broome when we chat with Neil Gower. We'll be chatting with Claire McAuliffe about a visionary recycled water plan for Melbourne before Troy and I catch up with Kath Chinque and Susie Sarkis to chat about how we move beyond status quo approaches. All this is a wonderful prelude before we get chockers with culture at the opera, chatting with Bruce Edwards from Underground Opera. It was around 2006, I reckon, when I first came to Broome to work with an IBA client, Auntie Pat Mummagen Torres, on her May Harvest's Native Foods Indigenous Cooperative. May Harvest supplies a range of wild harvested products, including kakadu plum or gabini or gubbage. It was the first time I'd heard of such a thing. A little plug here, check out the amazing information, products and cultural experiences on offer from May Harvest at mayharvest.com.au. A couple of years later, I got to work on the agribusiness plan of a water balance for the Broom Wastewater Treatment Plant, which incorporated options to compare lucerne, a bit boring, but more interestingly, native food species, again, including garbage. So you can see, I'm super keen to hear where everything is progressed to. And by hearing from Mama Baludjan's CEO, Neil Gower, and nursery supervisor, Kamal Love. We acknowledge the Yarrawu people as the traditional owners of the lands and waters in and around Rubibi, the town of Broome, in the Kimberley region of northern Western Australia again, where we're meeting for another podcast conversation today. We pay our respects to Yarrawu elders past, present and emerging. Today, I'm very pleased to be introducing to you Neil Gower, who is Chief Executive Officer at Mama Balungin. Mama Balungin. Thank you. Corporation. Thank you, Neil. Mama Balungin's orchards are growing thousands of trees and each hectare has the potential to yield tens of thousands of dollars. I'm really pleased to introduce you to Neil, but we also have an unexpected guest too, who I'm going to have to ask to introduce himself a little bit more. Kamal, can you tell us your background? Basically horticulture and studied marine biology for a period. And what are you doing with Mama Baludjan? Basically getting those trees to grow. Doing the planning. Excellent. All right. So let's dive in. 
Neil, can you, to just get us started, can you tell us about your water journey? Yeah, okay. I started with Mama Blanchard in 1999, so I've been with the organisation for 23 years now. About eight or nine years ago, Mama Blanchard had to find a new direction, i.e. there were other agencies sort of taking the various service contracts off us. And so we branched quite a bit into horticulture, and that's why we ran a garden and landscaping company. We run a native tree nursery on one of our properties, and uh, the property that you're interested in is the wastewater treatment uh, pond property that we have where we planted about 6,000 trees, and a lot of those trees are being treated water by treated water. So I suppose, yeah, over the last two decades I've been here, we've had to change focus on where we're heading pretty much reinvent ourselves because we were hemorrhaging various projects and government grants to larger companies and so even companies like uh, the Red Cross now um, compete with us for the various funding uh, that's available both state and federal and so our journey towards water was I guess through Water Corporation so two of our properties is on the Water Corporation land And so the actual seed bank where we've got 6,000 trees is actually leased to us by the Water Corporation. And so they are really uh, good partners. We are still partners with them. We've got a second property, much larger, where we've got Kakadu Plum or Gubbins growing. We've got 200 hectares there. And we're about to plant our second paddock or second hectare of Gubbins or Kakadu Plum. So... In the next month or so, we'll have 2,000 trees in that plantation where we hope to have a final number of about 27,000 trees um, across 30 hectares. So uh, we've pretty much got our teeth into our water journey now. And so, I mean, for instance, we uh, use, we've got a licence, various licences to use water, way too much. Um, they've given us 200,000 kilolitres as an annual allocation and we barely use 1.5% of that. So, yeah... Our journey is fairly big on the water now, as you can imagine. We've got three different properties where we're using up to, you know, 20 cubic metres of water a day. That's amazing. So I can see there's a lot of economic growth associated with this water. You're saying you're only using a small amount of the allocation. Do you have plans for the rest? Certainly do. I mean, like I said, we've got our our 2,000 trees in at the moment. We aim to have 26,000. And I think by three or four years' time, we'll probably be only using about 30 to 40% of our annual allocation, and they'll probably reduce it. Uh, we did reach for the sky, I suppose, in trying to get an upper limit of the amount of water allocation. And as our, the name suggests, is in fruit farm, we're not only going to be looking at gubbinge or kakadu plum. Certainly kakadu plum is our flagship uh, species, where we hope to break into the market where... Each uh, tree will be producing possibly five kilos and each hectare producing five tonnes and the 30 hectares producing, you know, upwards of uh, 120 tonnes of uh, fruit per annum. And that's potentially got a farm gate value of $5.4 million per annum. So uh, we haven't quite achieved that yet and so we're still starting starting out. And so um, our cash flow and our business planning suggests that in years uh, four and five we'll get us a major return. Uh, so in the meantime, we're looking for um, quicker turnover species, possibly lemongrass or uh, could be chilies, for instance, where we can grow something in between the trees because a lot of this water, while we're watering our trees, could water something else, probably like uh, lemon basil tea maybe 
or something much smaller that uh, we can get a return on it uh, during the year. What does this mean for, I guess, local people and and job opportunities? In the four or five years, three of our properties has yielded 175 trainees. Uh, Of those 175 trainees, most of them have received Certificate 2 and 3 in uh, Conservation and Land Management. Prior to that, we were running uh, horticultural levels 2 and 3 classes or training programs. But more recently, we've been running civil works programs because a lot of the works on our properties involves grading, maintaining fire breaks, uh, using excavators to put down pipes, clearing land, or not so much because we're very mindful of clearing land. And actually out at our fruit farm, we're not clearing the whole land, we're only clearing native strips so that we use a lot of the natural vegetation in between our plantations. Therefore, we've got things like soil erosion prevention, uh, windbreaks, uh, but most importantly they provide pollinators so obviously our fruit or our flowers needs to be pollinated mm. even though Kakadu plum is uh, said to be self-pollinating it still requires things like bush bees or insects, flies or even mosquitoes uh, to help in the poll- pollination. That's so exciting and over on this side Kamal you're also talking about in, uh, your enrichment of the savannah can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, with our recycled uh, program out at Crab Creek, rather than direct clearing of the land, we basically run the polypipe, the irrigation, just straight through the bush. Uh, each line's about five metres apart and then plant within the existing natural environment with uh, species that are of ornamental horticultural usages and... It also reduces a reliance on wild harvest. I'm wondering if you could perhaps reflect on what the challenges have been and anything that could be done differently to smooth the past for more of this happening in the future. Well, Terminalia Ferdinandiana or Kakadu Plum or Gubbins, um, there's not a lot of information or data out there um, about this particular tree, so a lot of it ha- ha- we've had to work out by trial and error and so that's why thanks to Alana McTiernan uh, for the Department of Primary Industry and Regional Development provided us with a $100,000 grant to just work out things like agronomy of the species. Also to work out what type of reticulation, what spacing should we have the trees apart, what type of reticulation. So a lot of it had to be done over the last few years. So as I said earlier we've got three properties and now after four or five years now, we've worked out different methods in, in laying out the reticulation, uh, fertigation. We'll soon be working on pruning, how to detect lack of nutrients in the, in the leaves. And so after four or five years now, we've pretty much got it down pat. But like I say, we're still learning. Um, the other day or well, a couple of weeks back, we had about 550 millimetres of rain. And that's just brought thousands and thousands of frogs out. And we've had the problem over the last week or so of just cleaning out the frogs from down the well. And so you can imagine what, you know, a a million frogs would have smelt like in the water supply. It's all been mulched. Um, I think the plants might like it, but the smell is um, is, uh, very obnoxious. So there's other things like fire uh, abatement. So we've already had two fires through this property. Luckily, we do fire break, so it's saved all our infrastructure, water tanks, and most importantly, none of the trees got burnt. Mm. Uh, Kamal was actually out there fighting the fire on the night of the fire on the weekend. 
uh, with his wife and with his kids. That probably shouldn't be bandied about, but um, that's how committed Kamal is, and so we've always got this project cl very close to our hearts, and so we're very committed. We go out there every day. We are both out there on Sunday, you know, from 9 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the afternoon just trying to flush out the goddamn frogs. But, <laughs> yeah, I think we'll get over that. But, yeah, certainly there is a lot of teething problems, and like I say, there's not a lot of research done into this particular tree. And so that's why we want to look at maximising yield. In the wild, you know, the tree might supply one or two kilos. What we want to do in the plantation, obviously, is obviously make it more efficient and also increase the yields. This particular tree can grow to 10 metres. And so if you can imagine trying to harvest fruit at 10 metres, it's going to become difficult. So there's things like, do we go sh uh, tree shakers? Uh, do we let the fruit fall on the ground? Or do we prune the trees so that the trees are much more manageable and that we can harvest the trees uh, just by walking or standing on the back of a, a small a rugged vehicle like an RTV? Because mm. we can't have vehicles, heavy vehicles, driving around the trees because that compacts the ground and obviously that will affect the root system. So we're very mindful of the tree and the root system and also working out uh, the water regimes on how, how to water these particular trees uh, these trees grow in the wild alongside the coast or just behind the sand dunes. So you can imagine just a particular tree having to live in those conditions. What, what sort of things is in this tree that protects it from that harsh environment? Plus it only gets annual wet season rainfall during Christmas time. So we've got to be mindful about the watering regimes, uh, how much fertiliser we put down. So yeah, we've really got a lot to learn, but we're well and truly underway to making it work and ma maximising the yield. At the moment, we're probably putting in a little bit too much love and labour, but I'm sure that we're going to come to a point where we're going to be far more efficient. Everything's going to be um, automatic, especially when we're trying to water 26,000 trees. Yeah. Well, it is a truly impressive operation. Thank you so much for both of your time speaking to us today. We've got one final question we do like to ask everyone who, who we interview, and that's, what's your favourite water song and why? I guess raindrops keep falling on oh, my nice. head would be a That's good nice one, but, um, you know, we've got a couple of local bands and one of my favourite songs is uh, Town by the Bay, which doesn't really talk about fresh water, it talks about more about salt water, but it was the first thing that really popped into my head when you said, what's your best water song? And obviously it's a local band that I like and it's the song called The Town by the Bay. That's beautiful. Kamal, what do you want to share with us? Well, that's quite a tough one, whether it's saltwater cowboy or smoke on the water, because it's the only thing I can play on, gu on a guitar or... <laughs> not really sure. Moon over Marin, but I'm not sure if many people would be familiar with Marin. Thank you both so much for your time. No worries, thank you. <laughs> what a great example of turning a wastewater treatment issue into a recycled water opportunity with social, cultural, environmental and economic benefits. Awesome project led by Neil Gower and the crew at the Mamabalajan Aboriginal Corporation. Let's take a moment to reflect on what they've achieved and perhaps where we might see their gubbage products emerging as we listen to the next track from Mark Cole's Smith's Kalaji album. This one is Carlby, featuring Metalia.
Is everyone feeling just a little bit more crazy now? You can treat yourself to more by downloading the whole Kalaji album from the Bandcamp platform. That Carby track featuring Metalja really transported me back, right back to my dub-loving phase in my 20s. And it was in my 20s that I also first met Claire McAuliffe, back in the early 90s if I really want to date us. I reckon Claire might put a solid challenge in on my claim of the coveted Pooh Princess title. She's an environmental engineer who's had an array of technical roles encompassing process engineering and concept designs of Melbourne's mega eastern treatment plant. She's also developed recycled water risk assessment frameworks and led the development of Melbourne's really innovative sewerage strategy and is now implementing it. Let's share our love of this most valuable resource with you now. Let's hear more from Claire McAuliffe. Today we're meeting on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country, uh, just upstream from the confluence of Meringue Bamurn and Birrurrung in Docklands. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the lands and waters and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As listeners who might have been listening can see, I'm, I'm talking to a kindred spirit here. I, I'm a bit of a fan of sewerage and Claire, the Melbourne sewer strategy kind of stands out, I think, from what's been done in the past. It's not just about traditional approaches for getting rid of sewage and making it a safe place for people to live. It really does get into enhancing human health and well-being and the environment and fostering the community stewardship of what can be done with it. 
That's pretty out there. Can you tell us a bit about what's in it and where you can see it going between now and you know where it's trying to head by 2070? Yeah so sewerage is one of the most exciting parts of the the water industry and all of the parts are really important and that's probably one of the things that we want to call out with the sewerage strategy in that there's so many resources in sewage. Um, People have traditionally seen sewage as this waste product, it's pretty yuck, it's something that just magically disappears but When you actually get to know it and you look at it a little bit more, you see that there's water in there, there's energy in there, there's nutrients in there, and there's so much value that can be had. And the sewerage system is probably the most important part of Melbourne's livability. Like, think about what would happen if the sewerage system stopped working. Like, Melbourne would become pretty unlivable pretty quickly. We could see all the the value that the sewerage system had, so we really wanted to drive the strategy in that direction to really transform it from being that waste disposal system to a resource recovery system. Love it. What is that going to look like for the average punter in their local area? Are are they going to see a difference? Because at the moment you flush the toilet, it goes away, all things are going well. When we're talking about impacts of climate change and urbanisation and the importance of green spaces in an increasingly dense urban environment, what's the sewerage going to do for the average person as they sort of see their suburbs evolve? Well, hopefully people won't see any change and the, the, the sewerage system will still be there when you flush your toilet and you have a shower and you wash your dishes and all that sort of stuff. It will still be taken away to be treated and, and to be made safe. But I think the important bit is that there's the opportunity to use this water again, to to use it for greening our parks, to have water for the the growing the trees and the urban cooling, to ensure we've got food security for Melbourne. There's a, a lot of agricultural land around the fringes of Melbourne. It's really important for our food security. So being able to use water and having a secure water supply is going to be really important. Well, that's really interesting. So because Melbourne Water is the is the wholesaler, as we call it in the industry, you've got big treatment plants. You're seeing it more as a major horticultural opportunity rather than maybe the decentralised sewer mining type options sort of further up the catchment? I think there's opportunities for both. Definitely the, the eastern treatment plant and the western treatment plant together treat about 90% of Melbourne's sewage and there's a variety of other local treatment plants that the retail water businesses own and operate and they also play an important part. But if we really want to get the best value from our sewage system, we need to think about it as a whole, not just about the western treatment plant or a local treatment plant, but where do we need the water? Where can we best use the water? Where can the resources best be used? and be designing our systems in a way so that that can actually be facilitated. So the water is where it actually can be utilised and not just having it at a, at a central point at Werribee or, or Carrum when the demand may be in a completely different location. And that's a really nice point too of the integrated thinking about water systems and the fit for purpose use. So at the moment it's not hard to explain to people in the street or pose the question, why are we flushing toilets with potable quality water? Are there other streams of water that we could be using? So I thought I'd touch on that with you in terms of, we keep talking about this, sounds brilliant, sounds like a no-brainer, but we've been trying for a really long time in the water industry to make it business as usual. The biggest barrier that that I've seen is, is actually those systems and processes, is they hold us doing what we've always done. So when we want to change stuff and when we want to think about it in a different way, we often find it's the systems and processes that 
that trip us up or slow us, slow us down and make it harder to actually realise some of these, these integrated water management concepts and being able to use water in a different way or, or, or take it to a different place. So do you have any um, silver bullets? Do you have any ideas on what we need to do to give us that, I guess, impetus or that authorising environment where, we, where the water industry doesn't feel that they're, they're taking too big a risk to do things differently? Yeah, I wish I did have the silver bullet. I often <laughs> wished I had a magic wand that you could just wave it around and say it's fixed. But I haven't found that. But I think there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of enthusiasm and people are really excited about the future, particularly when you explain to them and talk to them about what it could actually be and you, you give them that understanding that what we've got today could be something very different in the future. And I think it's up to all of us to start challenging the status quo, to not accept what we've actually got, to say, well, how can we do it better? Is what I'm doing today, is that actually taking us to where we want this to be in 10 mm. years' time? It's an interesting concept, isn't it, of what we consider value. So the value in the past, that equation, that economic proposition might be something different now. The use of the recycled water, um, when you do an economic analysis, might have a different set of parameters than it had in the past. Is that something that would move us forward? Yeah, I think there's been a big focus on efficiency and making sure we've got least cost outcomes and, and affordability. It's a really important thing and it's a real thing that, that the community is facing. But we also want to make sure that the, the lowest cost today doesn't come at a sacrifice of what our kids pay and what our grandkids pay. So how do we make sure that the choices we make are affordable for us but they're also affordable for our kids like we've inherited this amazing system and amazing water supply system and an amazing sewage system from our parents and our grandparents and we're now at this point of going wow it's our opportunity to stand up and do something to really set ourselves up for the next 50 years it really is an exciting point and i love livability as the catchphrase or the term there because livability could mean anything to anyone and maybe we should be having conversations about well how do we create livability and preserve livability in this beautiful place and I, I've personally and we obviously um, both of us have a bit of a, a point of agreement here around the sewage when we're faced with the effects of climate change when we're faced with urbanization and the pandemic really brought it home the importance of the green spaces and your ability to find somewhere nice and cool and green to be in an increasingly dense city, it seems to me that the sewage is the silver bullet in the livability equation. Yeah, I think it's part of it, but I think the bigger part is thinking about it as a whole system. Mm -hmm. So we've got, we've got sewage, we've got recycled water, we've got our water from our catchments, we've got water that's in our, our surface water and our rivers and our creeks. And they all play a really important role in our livability for Melbourne. And if we just focus on one part, we're going to miss opportunities in other parts. So I'd really hope that we can not just think about sewerage, but we think about our rivers, we think about the bay, we think about our water supply, where it all comes from and how it all connects in together. And I think that's how we, we keep the livability, because otherwise you're going to miss that bigger picture and, and something else is going to go out of balance. Oh, that's it in a nutshell, not siloing off and thinking about everything separately. That That is the key, isn't it? Place-based planning, perhaps. It's been awesome speaking with you, Claire. We have this last final question we ask all of our guests. It's our favourite. What's your favourite water song and why? 
I've got to go with hunters and collectors when oh, the nice. when the river runs dry. <laughs> I think there's so many messages underneath it, like let alone it being this awesome song from the <laughs> 80s that you just get up and dance to every time it comes on. But yeah, it's got the environmental undertones, it's got sustainability undertones and, and also that important part that it is a system and the choices that we make around funding, the choices that we make around our environment, they've all got implications for, for everything. So. I really hope that our rivers never run dry, but uh, yeah, I love the song. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thanks, Marnie. It's been a pleasure. Now, wasn't that good news for beautiful people? But I'm going to have to push back on the not rocking the boat and keeping your head down if we really do want to stop the river running dry. So great to hear from Claire McAuliffe. And if you got just a little bit excited by what she had to say and what is possible, please do peruse the Melbourne Zurich strategy. What a great legacy it is to be passing on to our future water managers. Hello, what is your name and how old are you? I'm Luna and I'm seven. Luna, can you tell us why water is important? Because we need it to survive. How does it help us survive? Because it dehydrates our body. (gasps) Wow. So when you're having a nice drink of water out of the tap, where does that water come from? It comes from lakes sometimes and it gets filtered. (gasps) It does. Wow, you seem to know a lot about water. What happens at the other end when you flush a toilet and the water and the waste goes? Where does it go? It goes sometimes down the pipe into the ocean and sometimes it goes into a pipe into the ground. Right. Is there anything else that you think we should know about water? Well, sometimes it rains and then you could get more water that keeps coming round and round. That's great. Thank you, Lena. Now, you've got a friend here. What's your name and how old are you? I'm eight and also my name's Leah. Leah, can you tell us what's important about water? Well, it refreshes us and, like, it makes us feel better if we're feeling pretty dry. It sure does. That's a great answer. So when you're having a nice, refreshing drink of water out of the tap, where do you reckon the water's come from? Uh, Probably the clouds. How does it get to the tap from the clouds? From rain? Sure does. And down the other end, when you're flushing the toilet, where does the water and the waste go? Usually it goes to the ocean and sometimes it fades and goes back into the clouds and falls down again. Wow! Great points there from Luna and Leo, students at the Dalesford Dharma School. Marty, I, I think it's really important to share with the listeners uh, of this podcast, Making Waves, <laughs> that this is not exclusively going to have a be Victorian-centric in its content. We're expecting, I'm expecting, a really strong divergent views from around the country around what water looks like for, for people of all different walks 
of Absolutely. Life. Our mandate, just to let listeners in on the, on the circuit, is to amplify unheard voices. So we're going to seek out the voices that perhaps don't always get heard. One of those people might be one of the senior policy people that um, has a view or a departmental position on recycled water. Uh, would, would that be a fair assumption, Marnie? I think you might be letting the cat out of the bag, but absolutely. <laughs> well, well, just for our listeners, I, I think I think that's a really will be an interesting segue into to the broader narrative that we're, we're seeking to share with everyone out there. I'm very sceptical of senior public servants, um, <laughs> and uh, whilst uh, I do have a little bit of a line aside in terms of my professional career as a public servant, uh, I'm very mindful that they do get spooked by events like this. <laughs> so we really have to push a little bit harder with some of our answers, I think. Yes, um, and but this is, this is where, where we're going to see how our craft evolves because we do want to make people feel comfortable, but we do want to delve into the tough issues. So yeah. that being the case, let's see how we go. We've reconvened at the Savoy. We're still on Wurundjeri country, so we again acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging as we embark on our discussions. And I'm super excited, Troy, to introduce two of my old cronies. We went to uni together, environmental engineering at RMIT, Susie Sarkis and Kath Chinque. That's fantastic, Marnie. Uh, welcome, ladies, to the Making Waves podcast. Uh, you know, we're really looking forward to do something doing something a little bit different here about better understanding and sharing some insights around the broader issues associated with the water management frameworks. And we may have a few topics to that crossover around health issues, traditional owner issues, across this and certainly governance issues. So I just want to thank you both for coming along today. So we all started out from a similar place, but we've gone on very different journeys in the water industry. Suze, can we maybe start with you? Can you tell us about your water journey? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I first probably start by where I live. And, you know, we all have a, we've probably all developed a spiritual connection to our local waterways, particularly during the pandemic. So it is my place to go. And I guess my journey or interest with water probably started at a molecular level in science. <laughs> nice. My interest was really around living cells, biology. And then that's a really instilled a passion for me in the environment and, you know, protecting the whales and dolphins. And I wanted to become a Greenpeace crusader, but oh, that you? never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I just got interested in realising that I wanted to fix things. And then the environmental engineering degree, and it was probably, what, four years yep. new when we joined? Yep. So it was relatively new and that really was a real opportunity to bring the two passions together. And that then stemmed into me taking interest in pathogens and you know things that harm us and so I went to the Department of Health. I work with a great team of scientists, engineers, epidemiologists, public health physicians, you name it and really we're just a passionate bunch trying to do what we can to protect people. We work with a great team and one of my more recent proud achievements has been wastewater surveillance program. So essentially what we're, we're doing with wastewater surveillance, and it's not entirely new, I mean there's been surveillance with polio um, globally, there's a global ah. polio program. So this is where you take samples and you look for that particular organism that you're interested in. So the public was hearing a lot from you through yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thanks for that overview, Susie. There's a lot to unpack there. You've covered off environmental degradation 
wastewater management, global sanitisation matters, and that probably might bring us to the sustainable development goals through the UN. I think there's a really nice interesting space for the people we have in this conversation around risk and different risk appetites and how we need to explore risk in protecting public health when we are going to be in this space of um, difficult decisions around supply security and fit-for-purpose uses of water and the different ways that we can look at supply systems. So, Kath, tell us your water journey. I'm an engineer, as you know, as you've already mentioned, and I had a very strong interest in the environment growing up, and I was also very good at maths. So to combine those two things, I thought environmental engineering seemed like a pretty good mix. So that's what I did, and I I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed the course. As Susie said, it was quite a new course at the time, Mm. so it was kind of really exciting to be involved in such a new field. There weren't many environmental engineers in the workforce, so it was... We were kind of forging our own path, which was kind of exciting at the time. And interestingly, the only engineering stream with majority females. Majority female, yeah. yeah. Even from day dot. Yeah. yeah. So after finishing that degree, I got a three-month secondment or three-month contract at Melbourne Water where I was assigned a particular project that I was to do, finish and then leave. 22 years later, <laughs> nice. I'm still there. <laughs> so they couldn't get rid of me. So you did all right on that project? I must have done okay. Yeah. must have done something right. Yep. Um, produced something that was useful. And that's, I guess, the reason why I'm still at Melbourne Water. I find that the work that I do is very practical and there's a, a real-world outcome to the things that I do. So I work in the drinking water quality space, mainly in the research space, and I've kind of forged a path for myself where now I'm the principal hydrodynamic modeller for Melbourne Water. We did introduce you incorrectly. We forgot doctor. Well, I'm a doctor. Yes, you are a doctor. (laughs) Yes. So I have done my PhD in um, catchment modelling. So I do a lot of modelling of systems, so of catchments and reservoirs, so environmental systems, to help with decision-making around public health and water quality. Super interesting. So... Let's just dive in because I love that you two have this sort of background and Troy has a bit of public health knowledge as well. As we know that water is a a fairly valuable and finite commodity uh, currently. We see less water in some parts of Australia than other parts uh, with climate change. But I'm wondering whether or not some of that rationale around that, that you discussed might have line of sight to some of the considerations around recycled water and what are the considerations around that in an environment where water water scarcity may be a realistic consideration? What's your sense about the Victorian appetite for that? Yeah, look, I mean, I can talk from my perspective in terms of risk management. I mean, there's no such thing as zero risk, right? Mm. We take risks all the time and we need to think about what are the least risky things we need to do and do those. So I always, you know, in public health and certainly in drinking water safety Mm. management, there's an ethos that you pick the best source water available to you Mm. and you use that and you preserve that and you protect that. And let's face it, we don't need drinking water quality for all those things we use water for, right? Mm. So why not? We're still discharging wastewater into rivers and lands. So... You know, there's still an untapped opportunity where we can harvest that and use that beneficially and, and preserve our precious water supplies. And it is complex and I think there needs to be some, you know, conversations around competition of resources. You know, there in terms of what available water there is and how do we protect it and preserve it. And then 
have those conversations around the natural environment and how water is used and how mm. we can better maximise and safeguard those water supplies for current and future generations and look at other ways of supporting those other uses that rely on water through other means. It's really interesting, Susan. I guess this is where my sweet spot is, is in the planning of the infrastructure to optimise what resources we have available. And I'm wondering, Kath, just picking up on that and then coming back to you as almost queen of the catchments, protecting the catchments. During a lockdown, your local place became really important to you. So as climate change bites and as urban areas become more dense, the green spaces become really important and we need to keep them green. We need to start talking about harvesting roof water, harvesting storm water, but we still haven't introduced potentially the sewerage element, which may have, and now I'm going to throw to Kath, who understands the pathological risks and whatnot. And this is this risk appetite. We don't have the luxury of using our drinking water to flush toilets or irrigate sports ovals or uh, all of that. We don't have that luxury anymore. What's the pathogen risks, Kath, around catchments and localised use of alternative water sources? So I guess the biggest risk to human health is other humans. They carry the pathogens that can infect other humans. It's about protecting you from that, protecting the consumers of drinking water from that. This is where I, I get really excited by localised use. and You still need to store the water yeah, somewhere. This is where I've been really pushing the barrow on. You know, in, in the northern growth area of Melbourne, development controls, planning controls that go beyond what they're used to, mm-hmm. you must collect and retain on site and reuse on site and setting some of those harvesting and reuse goals as planning controls. Yep. I think in new developments those kind of rules make sense. It's very mm. hard to retrofit those things in, in the cities that already exist. Yep. So people just have to be wary, aware of that. Yeah. And that you can't capture... So I've heard figures of... I think it was 700 gigs of water is wasted or flushed down the Yarra. Okay, let's just for the punters, what's a gig? A gigalitre. For the uninitiated, a megalitre. Is a million litres. Is a million litres is an Olympic swimming pool. A gigalitre is one MCG full to the brim. (laughs) I I want to pick up something that you both talked about then. You both will be aware that in the Latrobe Valley in particular that there's an industry transformation initiative or for want of a better word, around the repurposing of the brown coal mines mm-hmm. down there, in particular Hayeswood, uh, it's front and square at the moment. And I'm mindful of some of the risk issues that you talked about with recycled water earlier, but I'm, I'm wondering whether or not what's being pitched in some respect is that these mines will be potentially filled with water. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, they haven't landed on that, but there's six, half a dozen options being put forward under the Latrobe Valley Water Study. And we've got a whole bunch of community members really excited that they might have an instant lake on on their, their back, back step. Big lake, big hole. Yes, it's a lot of water. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I, look, I have my own personal views around that, uh, <laughs> uh, to, certainly in terms of cultural values around riverways and stuff, and I don't mm-hmm. want to see the Latrobe Valley... Trade River re-diverted again to fill those pits personally. But in some way it's been marketed that, that, that these will contribute to community wellbeing and recreational activity. Mm-hmm. There's an infrastructure cost with that, especially if one of the options around another D-cell consideration is taken up. 
But bearing in mind that there is one piece of information that says that we want to fill it with potentially recycled water instead of pumping it out, I think, in, 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 into the bay. And wouldn't a lot of those health risks that you've just covered off on still prevail in that water if it was uh, used as uh, a recreational opportunity? Uh, I'm just interested in thoughts. Because that's the thinking with, with some people. Mm. It's about understanding. So not all wastewater is waste the same no. wastewater and not all stormwater is the same stormwater either. So it's understanding yeah. what kind of water they're talking about here. And the standards that we have at the moment mm. for recycled water in Victoria are not designed for you to recreate in. Um, that's first and foremost. So that needs to be then looked at to say, well, what are the risks and then what are the appropriate standards around that? Because you're right, there are still exposure scenarios mm. where you could potentially have ingestion as a result of swimming and you might, you know, and, and microbially it probably hasn't been tested is whether what's a safe mm. standard of that water, also contaminants in that water or what is the safe ingestion route. But then the broader question is what better use could that water be put for? So I think that's the conversation that probably needs to have with these communities is perhaps the more important question to we'll, say, well, we'll, if we want this water in this dam, mm. this is what we're foregoing, what this resource mm. um, could be used for. I think they're the conversations that probably need to be had. Well, well, yeah. well I just, that raises an issue for me, um, just uh, as an observer of staff, and I'll just sort of share that I, I, I sat on the Latrobe Valley Regional Rehabilitation Committee for about two years when um, some of that modelling was done. And I noticed, and I, I probably won't put you guys on the spot there because um, of the roles that you have, <laughs> but I will. what I've noticed is when I was on that committee, there were all sort of power generator engineers mm. and there's no public health people informing, mm. informing any components around this conversation the reason I was on that committee was it was a token appointment because uh, you know, I'm tied up with traditional owner corporation and we have some particular high-value propositions around how we would like to see water used and we don't particularly want to see it used in that manner. There, there, there's a few other key, key reasons as well. We think the landscape's been modified enough. And so I'm just really curious as to... Has there been any views aware of any debate about a more diverse and divergent set of thinking on that committee? Isn't that interesting? And I'm so right. glad you brought this up, Troy, and I'd love to sort of get you guys to dial in. But this talks to the public debate and the engaged and informed optioneering. Um, and it's about if you want your community to be able to meaningfully engage in a public debate that's so important because it's 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 fundamentally going to change how the region operates then I think it's beholden on us with technical skills to communicate effectively it's the excitement that we can bring using our technical skills to bring the punters on board and say these are all options. None of them are decided, but let's have a conversation. It just brings me... Just, you've planted a seed in my head. I'm, you know, we're in pretty esteemed company today, and I'm not a scientist, but it's just what, what sort of category of water they're going to use for hydrogen e extraction because yeah. they're building a hydrogen factory somewhere in the Latrobe yeah. Valley. So and that, the that, interconnection that is what we're talking about. So, Kath, if we start talking about recycled water use and 
Sues, so we've you know we we nail the we we nail nail the risk, whatever it might be, but it's the highest value use is protecting our our, our water supplies. There's a whole lot of bulk entitlements and things that don't need drinking water quality. It's pretty expensive to run a desal plant. Yeah, but it's not as expensive as a lot of those tiny little infrastructures that you're talking about and putting those all across the city and trying to use the water that way. That kind of, that ends up being quite expensive as well. So it's just a matter of balancing what the community want, I mm. think. Do we have the economic business case around? Because I do hear that a lot, but I'm yet to actually see the financials. I don't think it's been done. Yeah. I think people talk very high level about it integrated water much, management. But I'm no, yet to see a really detailed... Yeah. analysis of localised little treatment plants, especially if they're rolled out in a, not this isn't a pilot scheme because they're all, always ridiculously expensive, you know, we're, we're trialling this technology, whatever. But sure. if there's a whole-scale commitment to a changed servicing across the board, that business case probably looks very different to a, um, we're just going to trial something at the MCG mm. or... Yep, I'm yep. sure it does look very different, but it all. But there's a lot of um, additional costs that maybe people don't think about, like the the maintenance of these things and the running of the things, mm. and the fact that you have to be on call 24 hours a day if mm. you're going to be servicing this water to to public and for public. Absolutely, use. it's not as easy as just plonking a treatment plan on and turning it on and walking away. Yes, yeah. People don't seem to understand that as much, and when you've got a really big treatment plant, it's a lot easier to manage that. It is under the current set up of a water authority, this is where I get really excited too, <laughs> of let's not get stuck in doing things the way we've always done them. Mm-hmm. Maybe a community water enterprise is the new space that a water authority o- operates. You know, if we want to preserve livability, because I think that when... And livability is... Uh, I love the term because it means something different to nearly every person. So there's always a good <laughs> conversation starter. What's livability to you? And... Invariably, it involves something green it, it, in your local space. It means something vastly different to someone living in North Fitzroy than it does in Trelgan. Correct. And um, and there's no wrong answer. So it's well, such it's a good about perspective. It is. It is. The activities and the accountabilities of a water authority are now to manage on-site systems, and that's a skill set most don't have at the moment, but need to. So. There's the in-house, we will do it all ourselves through our own workforce, or there's the outsource it through service-providing organisations and the water authorities do all of that, but ultimately someone is accountable for the performance of those systems. And the risk has to sit somewhere. That's right. Someone has to be That's to blame right. if something goes wrong. That's right. And I think that water authorities, we put our hands up and say, we are managing the risk. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, we're not managing the risk of those systems. And we're on, this is the long loop, Kath, so bear with me here. We need to take management of septics on yeah. the same way as if there's little small-scale package plants that are mining sewers or collecting stormwater dotted around the city, allowing us to have community parks and gardens watered, a community veggie patch irrigated, the skill set needs to expand into the management of those little package plants as they evolve and there'll be more and more and more of them. I'm interested in the whole sewerage debate because there's certainly emergency management considerations around that, especially uh, my observations having worked in that space throughout the Gippsland floods where 
a lot of the septics were inundated with mm-hmm. water and that that spillage uh, became a major uh, health issue for community. One of the m- more important discussions we need to have, and it's what, what you suggest, you, you mentioned Marnie, and that was around we have water in our environment and it's used for different things. Yeah. And we need to have a conversation, a difficult conversation around what is the highest value of that water and how do we preserve it? So this is about catchments, water so supply catchments. That's a perfect to bring us back on track. Thank you, Susie Sarkis. So what do you think the biggest challenges are for the planning and management of water resources? Well, I think it is competition for resources. I really do. I think our water supply catchments are our lifeblood. Now, let's face it, water sustains us. It sustains ecological life and us as humans as well. And I've seen globally where they might have lots of water but it's not safe and they can't use it. And the disease burden is huge. Mm. Globally, there are still many people that die, and especially kids, children, that die from gastro. So it is our lifeblood and we need to protect it. So the question is, in terms of what resources are available in our natural environment, what do we prioritise? And I'm talking about agriculture, forestry, mining... Recreation, drinking water. I think the, the ones that are most aligned are Aboriginal values and cultural values with human health and drinking mm-hmm. water. So it's about how do we have that conversation around what we preserve as our lifeblood and what other sources we can use or where those things happen spatially. I do want to acknowledge traditional owners and the way they looked at the way they managed land and others might in this room might be able to provide more insights to this, but my understanding is that they endeavoured to live with the land, not off the land. You know, they view some water holes as being sacred. Mm. And I dare say there's a rationale for that. They recognise the sacredness of that water hole in terms of protecting them. And yet we need science to tell us that, right? Mm. They got that. And that's, I think, what preserved their well-being, health, you know, instead of in, in preventing disease or minimising potential for disease. And I'd love to bring some cultural science into how we manage our resources and how we manage these natural assets and bring them back to life and, and, and restore them, not it, just protect them, but restore them. Great great segue there, there, Susie. And I don't think we can underestimate what we call traditional ecological knowledge and the IP that sits behind that. For instance, you talked about the, the importance of uh, good water quality coming out of our catchments. Well, there's a direct correlation to that in terms of what's going on in the cultural burning space and how well-managed burns contribute to good water quality. Yeah. And I think the missing link, in, not, not so much in this conversation, but by way of socialising concepts in the broader community, we're, we're not having those conversations yet. They're, they're emerging. And I don't think, from our perspective in, in the Gunai Kurnai and the Tanarong, I'm not speaking for them, but uh, we do work with them and Jaja that we understand is an actually direct correlation between water quality and cultural burning. Mm. Um, so I'd like to see someday a little bit more alignment with some of this strategy thinking around health and wellbeing and on-country activity. I think we miss, we're missing something there. We're all, I think, in this room, vigorously nodding in agreement of how we can do things better. But I think we've all experienced the status quo. So... We will bring this to a close. How to move from the status quo because that's the guts of the the conundrum that we're talking about here. 
we can't continue to do what we've always done. It doesn't deliver what we want it to. How do we move from the status quo? So we've got the, our favourite question. Yeah, okay. What's your favourite water song and why? Well, mine's Run to the Water by Live. There are some words that in, in there. Do you, do you all know it? Do you remember it? Yeah. Can you sing us a little no, bit? No, I can't. <laughs> that won't happen, Marnie. <laughs> but, you know, there's words that, you know, around run to the water and you'll find me there. Burnt to the core but not broken. And it's a place and a home of ascended souls. And for me, that's about... You know, this whole thing, you know, when I started around my, you know, the Melbourne River and going to the river to, you know, cleanse in some ways. For me, that song resonates and it's, it, lyrically, it's just so powerful. Wow. Uh, mine was just The River by Bruce Springsteen just because it's nice. Oh, I love that too. Beautiful <laughs> song. It's a bit sad, but The River holds a really special place for him, obviously, in that song. My favourite tune? Well, there's, there's too many. Um, Wash Me in the River's Flow, Archie Roach. For the same reason, the water words in there, but it's about a love song to to Ruby Hunter too. So, you know, Mm. and I I love the line, you only reap what you sow. Mm. So I think that's the challenging the status quo bit is you just got to keep having a go. You reap what you sow. If you keep doing what you're doing, that's what you're going to get. Right, I could start Down by the River by Neil Young. You know, he shot his horse. Or um, <laughs> because or River Deep Mountain High, I can tell you, Turner. Well, many different artists on that. You know, whilst that song's about um, poverty in some respect, water's a key player in that aspect. But there is a really strong connection between mountains and rivers. Well, thank you so much for your time. It has been wonderful chatting with you. Oh, thank you both. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Susie. <laughs>So it sounds like if we've got risks well managed and the robust economic analysis showing benefits of better use of all available water resources, livability is enhanced. Great to hear Kathy Chinque and Susie Sarkis reflecting on this from their water quality and public health perspectives. Now, if you would pop on your fancy attire, we are going to enhance livability by moving from recycled water into recycled assets. Let's hear from Bruce Edwards, founder and director of Underground Opera. Tonight we find ourselves underground at Mianjin or Spring Hill on the north bank of Mainwar, the Brisbane River. We acknowledge the Taurabal people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Underground, you might be thinking? Well, yes. We are inside the underground Spring Hill Reservoirs, designed and built to service Brisbane CBD in the 1870s. And they are spectacular. Soaring brick arches, a snow machine, red carpet, probably not quite what you might be expecting in a decommissioned service reservoir. That's because we're about to attend a performance of the underground opera. The brainchild of Bruce Edwards, who is the founder and director, and I'm sitting here with Bruce. Bruce, I'm a bit of a sewer rat myself. This is amazing. (laughs) Where did you get this idea from? Look, I have to say, I love fate. Fate is a wonderful thing. And without it, this space would never have happened. Yeah, so tell us about that, because this is... I've crawled about in sewers that are just architectural marvels, and there's all these retired water industry assets. 
how did the miner find the hidden gems? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, look, it, absolute fate, because I was in Brisbane one day. Now, I'd rarely go into the city, but I think I was going in to have lunch with my, my wife or something like that. Anyway, it was during uh, National Seniors Week, which I didn't know. And I've walked up and up at Brisbane Square, they had a bunch of um, stalls for different organisations for seniors and front and centre was the National Trust. I've walked up to this, this tent and just started chatting to this guy behind the counter, lovely man. And I just said to him, I said, oh, look, you know, this is what we do. And if you can think of any, you know, underground spaces in Brisbane or some any really cool spaces, I'd love to know. It was probably three or four months later and I get this phone call out of the blue and this guy goes, oh, Bruce, it's Stuart Armstrong, the Deputy CEO of the National Trust. And I've got what? Um, you know, what have I done? Um, <laughs> and sure enough, he asked me if I'd be interested in coming to have a look at this space. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a look. And it just so happened that for that five minutes that I turned up to the Brisbane Square and to this tent that they had set up for National Seniors Week, Stuart was just relieving the volunteer they had manning their tent right. so they could do a toilet run. <laughs> so it just so happened Serendipity. that mm. I spoke to the right person at the right time. And um, Stuart phoned up and said, yes, well, look, there's this underground water reservoir in Spring Hill. And I said, yeah, I'd love to have a look. I'm there with bells on. And anyway, <laughs> the door that you came in, I remember him opening that door up and we both looked into this reservoir and, and it was almost choreographed. We both looked in and both gone, ooh! <laughs> because we were just hit with this massive, the, the smell of, you know, 50 years worth of possums being in here yeah. and people breaking in and all this sort of stuff. And he looked quite sheepish, I have to say. And he goes, oh, Bruce, look, I, I hope, I, I really hope I haven't wasted your time, mate. I'm, you know, really sorry if I have. And, he says, well, what do you think? Do you think it could possibly work? And I took another look, a brave look into that door. And I looked down and I just looked up at Stuart and just said, yep, yep, this will be fine. Isn't that <laughs> amazing? Because I'm a sewer engineer, so I've been in these amazing pump stations. And they're just, the design, they're stunning. But I, I, I keep going to, I've got to ask Bruce this. I know if I talk to a water authority, they'll be going, did they do confined space entry? Oh, um, yeah. Did, you know, I'm just like, okay, so you've seen this amazing space. How hard was it to get the asset owners to let you in? Let's just say it was, um, it was a wonderful three years. <laughs> I had the world's largest consultant engineering firm supporting me. I had one of Brisbane's most respected architects supporting us and helping us out mm. and also the largest tunneling company privately owned tunneling company in the world yes. Geller they were supporting us as well and all these guys putting in these hours for us to, to make this thing happen and look it was I might say that you know council did make it take three years but but the thing is is that council was open to someone coming in and activating this space that, yes. that couldn't be activated for 50 years yes since it was decommissioned. Yeah. And so quite easily, council could have just turned around and said, no, Too hard. Yeah. no, we're not gonna look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, and there were, we had some really great people in council to work with. You know, we got, had a uh, vacuum truck. Right. So yeah. an e yeah, yeah. excavation yeah. truck. Before. And look, before I would let anyone in here, yep. 
I insisted I had to rake through all of the rubbish down here and just pick up all the needles and, yeah, right. and stuff like that. Yeah. There were hundreds and hundreds yeah. Yeah. we're talking. But once we'd made it safe enough for other people to come in, I mean, I was pretty good with the safety side of things, you know. I'd, I'd Mind side, had, I imagine you've got some training. Yeah, <laughs> con contracts in all of the major tunnels in Brisbane and Sydney yeah. And, yeah. and in mines around the country and even overseas in, in Hong Kong and yeah. so on. So I was, I was pretty, pretty hard on safety. Yeah. And it's one of the biggest yeah. things that we focus on. Yeah. Because one, we don't want to put these awesome performers in, in any sort no. of jeopardy, nor do we want to hurt the public. No, <laughs> but I mean, what you have created out of like, it's just so unique, it's so awesome. Yep. And it was the hidden gem. The community wouldn't have had access to it. Yeah. So what do you think it is that really draws the community to your performances in these spaces like this? Oh, look, half of the adventure is, is just the space. Yes, in you itself. Know, what I loved about the very first season we did here was I was standing down the bottom ready to you know, take people's tickets and check people in. Yeah. And you'd hear when every per each person came through the door up the top and stepped that first step yes. onto that scaffolding stairway and it was funny because you'd hear the, the step and then you'd hear an audible gasp. Yes, the beams. Oh and, my God, look at that. Look at an that. audible yeah. gasp, <laughs> which was just, I think that was the biggest reward. Yeah. And just being able to offer people this experience they've never had before. But also with such an intimate space, mm. we're able to you know, break down that barrier sort of thing. The audience is right on the stage virtually. And a lot of the stuff goes out into the audience and the applause you get after every song. And at the end of the show, that people just go, oh my God, I've never, I've never seen a show like that before. One that they're so connected to. It's fantastic. Underground opera, one that gives us an opportunity to, to work with these just these incredible performers. And I just go, hang on, but if someone stages all around the world, what, why are you here? And um, especially Glenn, my tenor from, from my opera shows, he's uh, Covent Garden, Carnegie Hall, you name it. And he just goes, oh, it's just, it's just awesome. <laughs> I just love doing it. Underground Opera's giving me that um, opportunity to hang the boots up. So I much prefer, um, you know, producing shows and so on than, than drilling and blasting. And um, although sometimes I do say that I don't know what's more difficult, having to deal with a bunch of, you know, pe petulant opera singers or, um, or petulant miners. But at least one of them, you can give them a bit of a kick up the bum and say, pull your finger out. But if you say that to the miners, they get all antsy. That's awesome. Thanks so much. That's fabulous. Yeah, no worries. Well, we'd been waiting patiently to get to the recycling episode, and it didn't disappoint. We heard from Neil Gower and Kamal Love about exciting garbage production at scale using recycled water in Broome. Claire McAuliffe introduced us to livability possibilities that can be delivered by approaches such as those in the Melbourne sewerage strategy. Cathy Chinque and Susie Sarkis chatted with Troy and I about the need to control risks to public health and water quality, but saying that wasn't an impediment to doing things differently. And then we swanned off to the opera visiting underground opera in a disused water tank in Brisbane. So, we can lead a horse to water, 
But how do we make him drink? Let's find out in the next and final episode for this series of Making Waves. We extend our sincere gratitude to the Water Services Association of Australia and the nine water authorities who gave the support and creative licence for this podcast. Thank you, City West Water, Hunter Water, Icon Water, SA Water, Sydney Water, Taz Water, Unity Water, Water Corp and Yarra Valley Water. Thanks also to ex-UK pop star James Henderson for our beautiful theme music and thank you so much for our awesome producer and special guest interviewer, Nance Haxton. We hope this has whet your appetite. Troy and I look forward to chatting with you in the next episode of Making Waves. Series one of the Making Waves podcast was created over a two-year period spanning mid-2020 to mid-2022. The views and perspectives presented are those of the individuals speaking. They do not necessarily represent the views of the organisations associated with individuals or the funders and supporters.